0: Things that go bump in the night. The Quiet Men of England, number six, Bung Havre, in which we hear a load of old cobblers. Far away from our implausible little village diadem, in the clustered and fly-blown streets of our capital city, among the stuccoed porticos and dank freemasonry, stands an edifice as imposing in bulk as it is ugly on the eye. It stands mostly empty now, though the mezzanines and lobbies have been given over to corporate events of an astonishing range of lassitude and bland drudgery. The remaining floors have havishamed over the years, The gathered tarpaulins no longer house the chandeliers, the latter having long since been pawned, the former gathered in piles upon scratched parquet flooring. Motes of dust and gaudy moths hang in the dancing beams of occasional sunlight that peep through the shutters. The air hangs heavy and still, like a bawdy joke in a rectory. Mounds of rubbish, yellowing papers, fragments of plaster, bent and rusted tools, gathered like idiot schoolboys in the corner of inky classrooms. The shades of its once proud denizens linger listlessly in its once grand hallways. If by chance you found yourself in these bare corridors of power, and were to utter the name of Nelton Constable, you would feel icy fingers of dread at your neck. Were you to pluck a giant spotted hanky from your pocket and blow that distinctive loud clarion call from your nose, you would feel the air grow chill and determine a movement in the drapes. Were you to sport a heron upon your arm, far-off rattling from the cavernous servants' quarters would usher you from the building as though the very hounds of hell were at your heel. Or were you... Well, you get the gist. For this was the former headquarters of the British Phrenological Society. The gangsters and rude clowns who had once fingered your skulls in these complicated shadows were now nothing more than the fabled charlatans of yesteryear. And the reason for their demise, or at least the reason they had told themselves as they bickered into irrelevance, was the curious case of Bung Parver, and, ultimately, the role in his life played by an innocent Milton Constable. Let us return, then, and where would we sooner be, to that shire-nestled chocolate box, to Wesley Turbin, and let me speak finally, ultimately heretically, of Myrne Park. In front of St. Arnold's pretty carved facade stood, or stands rather, a massive baleful oak. Rumour has it that it is over a thousand years old, but rumour only knows half the story. It had seen the erection of the church behind it the strange temples before that, and hundreds of years before the dawn of time, the great gurning pit that ancient men had yelped at. It probably had seen the first cluster of crouched, tangled, bent, hairy women barking at fire that were Wesley Turpin's prime movers then as now. Time, 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 the great leveller, and the beetle, and young boys, it wrought gentle, constant havoc upon its bows and beams over the course of its history, and it stood massive, aloof, and dread. It had a circumference of at least thirty-six foot, and the mighty bowl was swollen and distended, a great Falstaffian gammon of a trunk. In the tree, and part of the tree, was an encyclopedic array of fauna. The throstle made merry with song, the squirrel frolicking in its dray. The idiot child of Aston Tirrit had a tooth wedged in the bark. And in its capacious shade, as autumn gathered its skirts, swine gathered to feast upon the bountiful harvest of its acres. The number of those swine increased in proportion with the throng of mercantile villagers, quick to spot the serried ranks of improbably bearded young men in braces who had come to buy the famed hams from these pigs. Its sweet marbled fat produced a ham of impossible luxury, and these painted fellows would gather from far and wide and, with money as seemingly no object, buy as much as their pierced partners could carry. Beyond this source of interest and income, the trees served a far more practical purpose. For it was one of those peculiar idiosyncrasies of village law, neither written nor engraved except in the very soul of the place, that no man born in turban should go about his lawful business with the impediment of being poorly shod. <laughs> Thus it was that, on any given day, you might, if quick with the eye and sure of the view, determine a villager insouciantly walk up to the giant oak and reach inside the hole and place, or equally withdraw, a pair of boots from within. Those placed inside would be careworn, tired, shabby, and lacking, through sole, tongue, or lace, the basic necessities of adequate pedigree function, whereas those withdrawn would bespeak of quality craftsmanship. Those placed therein would, if one were close enough, carry the sound of the jangle of the coin of the realm clattering around inside them. Those that were withdrawn were removed to the distinctive rustle of officialdom, that is to say, to even the untrained ear, the unmistakable crackle of a V.A.T. receipt." Far into the night, beneath the cool moon, as storms blew and the thunder cracked, the tintinnabulation of a tiny hammer could be heard coming from that blasted oak, as could any number of exhortations, invective, and blasphemous rumours in a thick, phlegm coated, lisping dialect of unimaginable provenance. Such was the vehemence of these invocations of gods long forgotten, and such was the profane contorted imagery conjured by these curses, that the village menfolk had long since forsworn their wives or children from attending to their shoes here. Moreover, they ensured that they took their footwear to the great tree with a hushed reverence and a healthy amount of struck metal crammed into the toe. A sense both of respectful piety towards the workmanship and a fear of the inevitable round of spittle-flecked invective would necessitate a quasi-religious approach to the trunk, often accompanied by muted, stifled grunts as they trod barefoot upon either acorn or pig-sheet, followed by a hallowed and ever-so-gentle placing of the offending footwear within the bowl of the tree, wherein the small shelf received their home. All the menfolk followed this custom. Such was the quality of the craftsmanship. All save Melton Constable. That village colossus was, as we know, no slave to fancy nor follower of fashion. If he was in need of a cobbler, should his well-turned heel be in want of a nail, then, from whatever conveyance currently was his favourite, he would hurl with a degree of unflinching accuracy first one boot, then another, into the great hole. As he cycled, drove, or skated past, performing this feat of nimble athleticism, it would draw in its action murmurs of appreciation from the cricket-loving elders upon the park bench, and in its result a soaring, cacophonous tribute of such vile language from within the tree as would make a brothel-keeper blush. It sent to the heavens every rook from the topmost boughs of not only this oak, but every tree from the surrounding county. It is worth remarking, of course, that the boots were turned out, within a week, impeccably restored to their original luster and purpose. Now, all this had become, as you can well imagine, part of the quotidian warp and weft of daily village life. Wives and children carrying their tattered shoes on public transport to Big Town, whilst men gingered up to a tree and retrieved their well-shod shoes, with an occasional vile yell from within breaking the tranquil air for many a year. Then one day, the casual serenity of the waiting room in the local surgery was rudely violated by a small, impossibly pale, lumpen figure, perched upon one of the basketwork chairs, writhing in unmistakable agonies. Only once, Doctor Beeching, spelled inevitably Beauchamp. Only once Dr. Beeching had stoppered up his ears with cotton wool from the constant stream of coarse insults, drawn improbably deeply from the ready jar of ether on hand, and had a chance to lay his hands upon the man's febrile form, did he accuse that this racked and bilious specimen was one bone parlor, cobbler of the parish and hero of this tale. From what he could determine, among the stream of curses and perorations against his kith and kin, Dr. Beeching concluded that the wretch had developed a severe and agonizing case of tinnitus from the endless hammering and yelling into the void in a confined space. With barely a moment's hesitation, Dr. Beeching, being a man of as rare compassion as he was of healing, referred Bung to an audiologist of renown. The good doctor's infallible curative habits were not for nothing derived from the speedy handing over to men better qualified than he matters medical. Thus it was, that one winter's day, Bung Bahava, pitched up in the capital, his ears tightly wound with bandages and groaning dark threats to buses, turned up at the address he had been given for the Royal Audiological Society. Alas, though, His many years of squinting at men's souls had done little for his ability to determine letters, and he briskly scuttled into the door of the British Phrenological Society. Dear listener, you can only imagine the convulsions into which his presence sent the members therein. His head having recently and regularly taken the full impact of Melton Constable's size 11s upon it, was ruched, crenellated and dented in all sorts of places. His attempts at dialogue, interlaced as they were with such lewd and colourful insults, served only to excite the members. It gave sufficient cause for the society to have its most learned pontificate in the most pompous of ways. Pronouncements were made, papers written, Papers in which it was determined, in the most absolute and scientific of terms, that the glaring deficiencies and brute force of language were entirely, unequivocally, and without the merest shadow of doubt, the result of, and determined solely by, the location of particular lumps upon poor Parva's dough. Needless to say... When the truth, as is its wont, came out, and the source of Bugparver's tessellated infrastructure traced back to the unerring accuracy of Milton Constable's aim, the society was deemed to be a den of iniquity. They were labelled as charlatans, and as full of knavery as a parliament. They were ruined. Creditors were notified, and their once fabled halls were finally locked for good within the year. Bugparver took to wearing a muffler about his ears and chewing on a perfumed ketchup. And Melton Constable would, when he remembered, dismount from his conveyance and place, with a degree of quiet solemnity, his flapping boots within the tree. Nature will find a way, and Wesley Turpin, as ever, was a mere symbol in its never-ending symphony. I'm gonna it. Men of England is a very broad and very shallow production, written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Written.